So we left off yesterday with straightforward and gentle in speech. Uh, I'd like to talk a little more about gentleness of speech. It's not just gentleness of speech, it's right speech. And sometimes right speech can be rather direct if it's necessary. Part of loving kindness is that you gain some skills in how and when to speak. So there's some uh, basic little rules or suggestions for monks about how to correct each other. Because monks live with a lot of rules. And if you live with in a community of monks, not everybody follows the rules all the time. And sometimes you have to remind them of the rules. Sometimes it's a matter that they just forgot, or sometimes it's very deliberate, or sometimes they, they cannot live up to the rules. And so since they more or less signed the contract when they ordained to give up their own preferences and how they want to behave, so they've just handed their lives over to the, to the Sangha. And the ordained Sangha has these commitment to various types of behavior and rules. And whether you like it or not, sometimes you have to offer a correction to another monk, but the Buddha gives you some guidelines for that, suggestions, instead of just angry, judgmental corrections. And this can be helpful when you think about this gentle in speech. So before a monk corrects another, one should ask oneself, do I speak with a heart of loving kindness? Now that doesn't mean that you're going to uh, not criticize them, not correct them, it means that the rules of conduct, etc., are just suggestions for the improvement of the human species, actually, the individual and the culture around them. And so it would not be kindly of you to not help another person understand the situation. So loving kindness, by the way, is not a doormat for others. It can be extremely strong and insistent. And that is not in any way contrary to the idea of loving kindness. Loving kindness can be very adamant. And so one asks oneself, do I speak with a heart of loving kindness? The second thing is, when I speak with this heart of loving kindness, it can't just be at any time, any place. So one asks oneself, is this the right time and place? And what are the right times and places? Is this person that I'm speaking to tired? Are they in a hurry? Are they going somewhere? Are we in front of a bunch of people who really shouldn't be listening to this conversation? So that's the sense of the appropriate. Now, how do you get the sense of the appropriate? Well, a Buddha is giving you some guidelines for that, but Actually, the good heart tells you that. And you know, how do you know this stuff? Because you also think, now, how would I like to be corrected? I, I do want to be corrected. In fact, you ask your fellow monks to correct you, to offer you corrections. Quite often, I, uh, especially at the beginning, when a monk is first ordained, and I've given ordination to several monks, uh, there's a very there's a period of time when they're absolutely open and 
they just implore me to give them corrections at any venerable sir, you know, anything I do, please tell me, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it is, it, it's sincere, actually. As time goes by, though, one sort of returns to one's normal defense structures, and then they're somewhat less open to the, <laughs> I always say, and, and lay people do tell me this as well. They come up to me and, oh, please tell me anything. <laughs> I say, well, yeah, I, I've heard this one before. We'll see how it goes over time. So actually loving kindness is that openness and you, they do have the right attitude and there is nothing to defend. If you get corrected, it's just that you're you're wiser than you were before. And if you make a mistake and you realize it, then you're wiser than you were before. That's all there is to it. But loving kindness is uh, um, trying to open you up to, to this uh, possibility where you don't have to defend yourself all the time. So part of loving kindness is a sense of safety, confidence, and you, you're, you can receive correction. So the other elements of correction is, do I... Am I myself free from this fault? So before you go correcting everybody, you ask yourself, maybe I have some business to take care of myself. Um, before I criticize everybody for leaving the door open all the time, I better make sure that I didn't leave the door open. Uh, this, this does happen. So re you review that. And so that's not to be preoccupied with other people's business until you've really taken care of your own. And do I speak in accordance with the facts? This, we happen to be in the time of the pandemic and we happen to be in the time of, which is rife with political controversy, etc. And people are incredibly misrepresenting the facts of the case. Why do they do that? Because they need to win the argument. They need to win their point of view. And they're perfectly willing to throw the facts out the window to do that. So loving kindness actually isn't trying to win an argument. Loving kindness wants the truth and wants the facts and doesn't want to necessarily be right all the time. You don't have to be right. Even some of the leading disciples of the Buddha, the fully enlightened Arahants, were not right all the time. One of the the corrections, there's, there's a set of rules called the sekias, or kind of like little politeness rules, little rules of conduct. They're not significant, they're not really moral rules, but they're rules of etiquette and how you conduct yourself. And the first one is that a monk should wear his robes evenly all around in an orderly fashion when one goes out on alms round out of the monastery. And one day... Sariputta himself put on his robes and they were askew, they were off. And a novice, a young novice who wasn't even a monk, pointed it out, said, uh, Venerable, your robes are not on evenly all around. So did Sariputta said, well, who are you talking to? I am the, I'm the right hand of the Buddha. I am the foremost in wisdom. I am the, I'm an arahant. How dare you? No, no. he said, Thank you very much for pointing that out. And then what did he do? He adjusted his robes because that's what the rules ask you to. Proceed in public in an orderly fashion. And so, you know, there's no defensiveness about it. You, you, can, you can be wise and skillful and so forth and still make mistakes, you know. 
So this is what um, this is what we become comfortable with. Is that yes, of course, it's no no problem. Um, so this is part of right speech and the interweaving of the emotion behind right speech. And not only that, it's how to receive right speech and how to receive wrong speech as well. So one of the things is if a monk corrects you but is incorrect in the correction, you're not to say, you idiot, what are you talking about? Don't you know the rules? How dare you correct me? That's not how you respond to that. You respond with, I, I understand what you're saying, but I think it's, it's, the rule is actually this way. So you're not to be, you know, answer with kind of harsh returns, even when the person is incorrect. And sometimes they may be incorrectly motivated as well. They're actually talking from a spiteful point of view or an angry point of view. You're not to respond in that way. Uh, but it doesn't mean that everything everybody says is correct. And you must, you must acknowledge that you are, if, if anybody corrects you, that you must acknowledge yet, uh, that you were at fault. No, because sometimes you're not at fault. So it's not necessary that you are all, that everybody else is correct. Sometimes they're not. And so you, but you ask yourself, are they correct or not? If they are, well, I just learned something. If they're not, that's no problem. That's their problem, is it? It's not my problem, it's their problem. So this is the balanced emotion. And you really can't engage in skillful community interaction unless you do find this heart of loving kindness. Loving kindness is a skill and it is sanity itself as well. And you cannot proceed very far without it. So I will continue with some of these um, points of foundations. This is uh, the preliminaries to loving kindness, which I recited yesterday, just that section before you even get to the point of radiating loving kindness. And the Buddha being a great teacher systematically walks you through some of the foundational points this overall, and you will determine by the time I get through all of these various preliminaries that you need to work on, to decide yourself whether it's a complete teardown or just a renovation. Um, you can't hope to generate loving kindness if the building, the so-called building, that is your fundamental personality and the structures that you are grew up with, the way you speak and act and think, if they are of such a nature that they are so far out of line with these qualities, then you really have to start again. It's not a renovation project. Some people actually are quite developed in this and all they got to do is just open a few curtains or maybe replace a cracked window or two slight distortion in their vision of how things are, maybe let some fresh air in. That's all they're going to have to do. And they're going to open to boundless loving kindness very easily. They may in fact have experienced the great benefits, even with, even if you have had good unconditional love for even one other being, you are already familiar with the beauty and the rewards of this experience. So you have to ask yourself and be willing to 
review yourself. And it's not a terrible thing to be told that it's a teardown. <laughs> it's, uh, you're not going to renovate this thing. It's, there's a lot of termites in the foundations here. To start again is fine, because if you don't, the thing will collapse around you. And I'm sure it's a very unpleasant feeling to be in the midst of a building as it's collapsing. It may, may be held together by, you know, spit and glue. Uh, and the first time you're, the situation shakes, the first earth, earth tremor that you find yourself in, you do collapse. People do. They have entire personality collapses. They can't function, etc., or they end up in worse situations. So it's much better to take time and evaluate and just listen to the voice of another, and, and especially not particularly my voice, but I'm just more or less translating into modern English the ideas and suggestions of the Buddha, who um, does have a good track record of 2,500 years. He's produced a lot of uh, good, uh, good results in people who attest to this throughout their, their life, you know. And if you meet them, you, you yourself can attest. You can see that their whole lives have been models of um, positive impact, both for them, their own, on their own emotional structures and the lives of others. And so that we use those models and we determine whether they, they work by that. And, and you do have a, a long, very good history and lots of uh, biographies to work with. So if you discover that you have lots of work to do, it's no problem at all. It's a, it's a lovely future. It will, it will take uh, a work, and the Buddha is not afraid to tell you that. And the Buddha himself was not afraid to work. Uh, because the work, it may be a difficult at first, but it, it's a lot better than not working. If you don't work, the consequences are perilous. Perilous, I tell you. <laughs> so uh, be, turn your face towards the, the work, the project, and uh, begin. So we shall go on. Humble and not conceited. Now, these are English words, and we have to inquire into it. And... By the way, I th this is a core text. This is one of the cardinal suttas of the entire Pali Canon, the Discourse on Loving Kindness, the Metta Sutta. And you should have a copy of it. You should commit it to memory. You should commit it uh, and explore different translations of it as well. It's something that will go through your entire life with, and you can continuously get new ideas and new visions out of it. So when you come across a simple line like humble and not conceited, it's not something you just have to uh, digest right away. It's something that you chew on for a while. You contemplate, you keep asking yourself, what is humility? What is conceit? So humility, why should you be humble? Isn't it better to be a winner? <laughs> <laughs> humble. Humble is, as has this quality, which I talked about in right speech, is that the ability to receive correction. So pride tends to not want to find out that you're not um, perfect. 
It doesn't want to find out that you have faults. But humility is perfectly happy to find out that because it's just an invitation to feel better. Uh, it's, that's why you go there. I was a musician long ago and I paid people to correct me. <laughs> I paid a lot of money to go and I didn't want the teacher to say, you're wonderful and everything. I wanted them to say, that note could have been better. That phrase could have been better. Here's how it should go. And I'm not thinking, I don't like that. I think it's perfect. No, I'm there to, to get better. And so that's kind of your spiritual teachings as well. It's like you're really there hoping to, that the person will put out enough, concern themselves enough with you that they're actually willing to tell you something. And by the way, uh, one, of the, one of the worst criticisms you can get is silence, is that the person doesn't correct you. It's a bad thing not to be corrected. It means that you're not open to it. And it means that the person who is capable of correcting you is writing you off. And that happens. The Buddha himself said, you know, there's certain, certain people I, I won't correct anymore because I waste my time. And so please feel delighted by correction. It means that your teacher hasn't given up on you. <laughs> I also taught music, and in fact, uh, I some of the lessons closed with, okay, see you next week. <laughs> I, I realized there's just no point in telling them once more that you have to go home and practice, and you have to you know, do these things. If you really want to attend here and pay me for these lessons and then not do anything, well, what can I say? If you want to come to a monastery, if you want to go to a retreat and be around and then not listen to anything, what can I say? So humility is that openness and in a sense, delight, you know, and again, not all criticisms are valid and true. And this is when I, I saw some people who with great humility that received criticism and sometimes they would receive it and this is an exercise that you can take up yourself they would receive the criticism knowing full well it was incorrect and then and not not defend themselves and that's a little exercise that you can take up actually you can exercise taking up the idea of non-defense like even when people mistakenly blame you not to not to correct them on that there's a, a saying, I think it was by Gladstone, one of the prime ministers of England. They asked him, how do you manage to be in this position of prime minister? He said, never complain and never explain. It's not a bad idea to try that um, because people are frequently wrong and you don't have time to spend your entire life clarifying who you are to everybody. Lots of people will misunderstand you will not understand your position, who you are, and you can spend the rest of your life explaining and complaining about this or not. So your ears are open to valid criticisms, points that will help you. And, and, and the criticism may actually be delivered in a rather unskillful way, but if, if, it's, uh, if it's valid, then you, you use it, you take it up. 
even if, and if it's not valid, you have an opportunity to, so if somebody, you're driving your car in traffic and somebody goes past you and gives you the finger and shouts through the window and so forth at you, but you have not done anything particularly unskillful, you should, uh, should you be mad? No, you should not be mad. Here's another opportunity for what? Road love, road love, yes. I teach road love. This is, uh, I'm, I'm a driving instructor. I teach road love. Uh, you know the pro you know the opposite term, don't you? Road rage. This kind of people take this up. They're mumbling under their breath. They're talking to themselves. They're etc. As if anybody could hear them. What they're building up is frustration and anger. Uh, just putting toxins into their own system by criticizing everybody else's driving and etc. Et you have an opportunity every day if you, if you go on the commute to do the opposite, to realize everybody is in, in the pressured vice of modernity. You have to get from point A to point B on time, mercilessly, and traffic is out of your control. And yet modern society insists that you must be there at 8.30, and there is no excuse, except that, of course, traffic and cars and everything is not possible to control. And yet, you feel this tension throughout your entire body, this urgency to be there in the face of impossible situation where you can't be there because you don't have a flying car. <laughs> and so this is the tension that is created for lots of people the demands of a society that, that has invented the, the watch, the clock, the minute, and even the second. So when a society invents little units of time like this and insists that people conform to this impossible situation, you're going to have this, un, this tension. And this tension can come out in anger, frustration, and that wears on you. Uh, to continuously live in that stew of toxins, impossible attempts to do the impossible every morning and every evening. So this is, you, you must take up the strategy of doing the opposite. This could be an opportunity for sympathy for yourself and for everybody else that has to get out on the freeway and get impossibly to work in the face of, especially in Canada, in the face of merciless weather. So this is, you can take these opportunities and when people pass you by giving you the finger and things like this, then uh, you, what do you, what do you think about them? You think, may you be well, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. I understand why you're angry and unskillful. It, why, when I say, I understand why you're angry and unskillful, what do I mean? Do I mean that they're justified in this? That I, anybody would be? No. I mean that I understand why you're ignorant. <laughs> you don't know any better. It has not occurred to you that that's not a very skillful response to this situation that we're all in. The difficult, frustrating situation of just being a human, having to get a livelihood and manage a life. And we, our natural uh, instincts are probably inherited from our evolutionary, our animal situation. Fight, 
or flight. <laughs> Either we, we fight or we run. <laughs> These are the primary basic emotions. This is anger and greed and so forth, just manifesting it. Because the animals don't have a lot of reflective capacity. They just can't understand and retrain themselves. But you have no excuse. You are human and reflective and have the capacity to say, I get it. My response to this situation, the situation is I cannot get to work on time. I'm stuck in traffic. Now, how shall I feel about this? Now that's the transition from ignorance to knowledge. I have a chance here actually to feel bathed in well-being and sympathetic kindness for everybody in, in the traffic jam. So sometimes I mm, describe a news event. You, you see this from time to time, of course, some focus on a road rage incident where somebody gets out and shoots another person or they, they get out in a fist fight on the highway as a couple of businessmen and all. <laughs> they have a fist fight or something. How many times have you seen a road love story where somebody gets out of their car, goes over and hugs somebody and says, we're all in this together. <laughs> Modernity has done this to us. I know what it's like, dude. <laughs> Here, here's a sandwich. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is, I hope to see more stories like that. And perhaps somebody who's listening to this will pull it off. And if you do, send me the clipping, please. <laughs> so humble and not conceited. So let go of that conceit. Uh, you probably can do a few things well, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can't do well. <laughs> That's the nature of being a human. And you're, you didn't, you know, you didn't put yourself, you didn't order yourself online and arrive and then put your body together, put your, screw your hips into your sockets and everything and flick the switch and get a good battery to run the, the operation. You didn't do that. You're just born and your body just grew by itself uh, without you knowing the slightest reasons why the thing works or how it works. You also have a mind that works at incredibly in all kinds of different dimensions. And you don't know why or how, because none of this stuff is yours. So it's not a good idea to be conceited about it. You actually didn't make your body and you didn't make your mind and you didn't make the family that you're living in. You didn't make any of this stuff. But what can you be responsible for? What can you take credit for? Is having listened and put in skillful causes. So you're... Most of this conceit, you know, you happen to be handsome or tall or any of this kind of stuff, or you're smart, you're able to do math or something. There's no reason to be conceited. It, you didn't really do this yourself. It just happened. However, you are free to cultivate and develop anything that will be helpful to you and to others. And that is admirable and worthy of praise etc. But you're always within the limits. So if you're not talented at something, then yes, you may have to work very hard and you will get moderate results about it. Very good. But you have limits in these things. 
certain things you are able to accomplish, certain things you're not able to accomplish. And this is the way you should talk to yourself. Uh, now, the language that's around you is endlessly misrepresenting reality. They're praising and blaming people for things that they simply weren't there doing. And uh, that's why we have to question this egotistic idea and uh, the conceit that comes along with it and also the fear that comes along with it. Because if one needs to stay number one, if one needs to be praised all the time, you're in constant fear of blame. So this is why humility and non-conceit are seen through by loving kindness. Notice that if you're with somebody who is really warmly friendly to you, cares about you and your safety, your well-being, they don't care if you're if, about your your beauty or your handsomeness or your talents or your skills. They're simply um, are there to help you in any way they can. And why is that? Because loving kindness is not interested in that. You, you don't get extra points for being pretty. Now, notice this, this particularly with animals, like your pets, your dogs. Some of these dogs are horrendously ugly things. <laughs> they smell bad too. <laughs> now, I have a story about this. Loving kindness. So uh, there was a fellow many years ago who had a dog. He lived alone in an apartment and he had a dog. And he had had this dog since he was a teenager and he moved out of his house and everything went off to be a, a independent man and brought his dog along and the dog uh, got older and got stinkier as well. But the man loved the dog so much that he did not know this. And sometimes he had to, he, he would come and drive the monks around as well. And sometimes he had to bring his dog along because he couldn't leave his dog at home alone, of course. So uh, one time he came to drive my teacher at the time, Bhante Gunaratana, and Bhante uh, got in the car. <laughs> it was like a two-hour trip. <laughs> this dog stinks so much. <laughs> and and uh, finally he said to the driver, this young man, he said, oh, that, your dog, just he's just so smelly. You know, how do you put up with this? <laughs> He smells? <laughs> he couldn't smell him at all. <laughs> so uh, this is kind of like a mother with her child. When uh, your child, when you open the diapers, it doesn't smell. But anybody, any other baby <laughs> smells stinks. <laughs> the diapers stink. But your child <laughs> smells like roses for your <laughs> to your mom. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you would transform the, the world around you through loving kindness. That, and you see this with nurses and doctors and physios and stuff. They're, they're dealing with people in the worst kind of conditions. And yeah, they're full of loving kindness and compassion. And part of their compassion is that they're well-trained. So one of the, this is how you demonstrate compassion is you have some skills. That's your compassion. You, you know how to bind up a wound. You know how to cleanse a wound. And some of these wounds are horrific and they're stinky and everything. And yet you have a skill and that's your compassion and that's your loving kindness. And you're not interested in how terrible it looks or how bad it smells. You, you just do it. <laughs> and you don't have, there's no sense of judgment. So this is 
Loving kindness does this to you. It allows you to transcend these things. And if you don't, you live in a world where you're all, you're terribly preoccupied and you can only tolerate the perfect, the beautiful, and the nice smelling. <laughs> so this is a, a sort of a catalog of the benefits of loving kindness. And we shall continue with this. We are now um, probably one third of the way through the first one third of the loving kindness sutta. And we don't want to overtax you today out of loving kindness for your own patience. So we will proceed tomorrow. <laughs>